welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patrizio, and today we're talking about the readings for the third Sunday of Easter, April 26, 2020. Our gospel today is the story of the road to Emmaus. Two of Jesus' disciples, heart of heart to believe in the resurrection, are on their way back home. Jesus encounters them, and while eating with them, reveals his identity. In this episode, we'll see how the meal at Emmaus was Eucharistic and how it undid another meal in the Garden of Eden. We'll also discuss the likely location of the biblical village of Emmaus, and we'll even make the case that the Cleopas identified in our gospel is none other than Jesus's uncle. Hey everyone, welcome back. We're talking today about the readings for the third Sunday of Easter, which is uh, our gospel is from the gospel of Luke, and it's the famous story of the road to Emmaus. Uh, this is one of the stories that is uh, solely in the gospel of Luke, at least in the specific detail in which we encounter it. It, it appears to be alluded to in the gospel of Mark. So at Mark chapter 16, uh, verses 12 and 13, it says, After this, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. So it, it appears in the Gospel of Mark that we have a little allusion there to the road to Emmaus story. But uh, this is a story um, just in Luke. Luke is famous for the the particular stories he has. So, for example, the famous prodigal son story is only in the Gospel of Luke. So the road to Emmaus uh, follows suit there. Let's begin by reading as usual. So we find ourselves at Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and taking with each other about and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. 
As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. All right, again, that was Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. And we can begin, many of the gospel stories begin uh, by setting the scene for us and, and the characters. And Luke's gospel, the road to Emmaus story, begins in much the same way. And so we're introduced to two characters and to the setting which is on the road heading to Emmaus. Now there's a little bit of mystery in both of these things, both the two, the two characters that we're introduced to and the road to Emmaus itself. So at verse 13, the very first verse of our gospel, it says that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. Now, some people assume that we're talking Uh, some of the 12 disciples, or at this point, the 11, because Judas has uh, killed himself. But I think it's fair to assume that these are not apostles, but rather disciples, okay? And there there is a difference there. And and for example, in, in Matthew's gospel, it's very clear that there's a difference. So a disciple is simply, and even etymologically in the word, is a follower, An apostle is one who is sent. And so the 12 are apostles, but not all disciples are apostles. And so uh, the two here appear to be disciples, most certainly. They appear to be followers of Jesus. But I don't think we want to assume that they're one of the 11 apostles because if we jump down again to the last part of the gospel— At verse 33, it says that same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and their companions gathered together. So these are, these are two disciples of our Lord, but they're not two of the 11 or two of the 12. Okay. But who are they? We want to know who they are, right? Well, here, right off the bat, Luke does not tell us, but then if we jump down to verse 18, he does name one of the two. It says, then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? Who is Cleopas? You're going to love this. If we scour early church documents, especially uh, Eusebius, and and, uh, Eusebius really comes into play a lot here, actually, in the story of the road to Emmaus, because Eusebius, who lived uh, in the third and fourth century, uh, so the the 200s and the 300s, right? Uh, 
he uh, was concerned with church history. So he was one of the first church historians. And he was also con- uh, concerned with, um, you might say, church geography. So Eusebius really uh, enlightens this road to Emmaus story because he can tell us a little bit about who was on the road to Emmaus. And he also tells us quite a bit about where Emmaus was. So first, who was on the road to Emmaus? Well, if we go to if we go to Eusebius to his uh, his book on church history, and we do a little uh, a little search of Cleopas, uh, we find. Well, first of all, let's link Cleopas to other places in in the Gospels. So um, there's a little bit of a spelling variation. It's very slight, though, and the spelling spelling variation is not enough to exclude the high likelihood that the Cleopas here is related to the Mary wife of Clopas that we read about in John's gospel. So at uh, John chapter 19, verse 25, it tells us standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And so it appears that this Cleopas or Clopas on the way to Emmaus has some connection, is actually likely the husband of the Mary who was with Our Lady and Mary Magdalene on Golgotha at Jesus's death. Okay. Now back to Eusebius. We scour Eusebius's church history for any mention of uh, Cleopas, Clopas. And do we find anything? We certainly do. And we get the most fascinating description of Cleopas. We're actually told that Cleopas is none other than the brother of St. Joseph. All right. Cleopas or Clopas is the brother of St. Joseph. And so on the cross, on Golgotha, um, we had Mary. We had Mary Magdalene. We had Mary, the Blessed Mother. Uh, Jesus's mother, Mary Magdalene. And we had Mary, the wife of Clopas, who we now know is, uh, is uh, Jesus's aunt. All right. And this, this makes sense too, because sometimes when we read that section from John, uh, we, we read Mary, the wife of Clopas, and we recognize how she's introduced as, as, Jesus's mother's sister. And there's a tradition that Mary was an only child. The blessed mother was an only child. And so we're kind of like, what's going on here? Well, this makes sense. If Mary, the wife of Clopas is the blessed mother's sister in law by marriage. Okay. And that's exactly who she was. It was, uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas is is our lady's sister-in-law, Jesus's aunt, married to Cleopas, who is none other than the brother of St. Joseph. And just kind of a fun little tidbit here that Eusebius also tells us. Uh, Eusebius tells us that um, after James, who was the first bishop of Jerusalem, was martyred, a certain Simeon takes over the see of Jerusalem and this Simeon is none other than uh, Clopas's son or Our Lady and St. Joseph's nephew or Jesus's cousin, okay? 
And this also helps to kind of give real detail and texture to the idea that when we hear certain of Jesus's followers being called his brothers, perhaps you've heard the apologetics answer that brothers in Greek has a broader meaning and can refer to really anyone in your clan, like cousins. We really understand then that Jesus did count some of his cousins among his followers, okay? And so we have this, uh, this, this just illuminates so much, right? I just, I love this idea because we, we know that Jesus probably had family, uh, but we don't think about it often. We don't think about St. Joseph having a brother. We don't think about Jesus having an uncle. We don't think about um, how on, uh, on Golgotha in his last hours, uh, his aunt was there with him. Beautiful, beautiful things to consider. Okay, so this is Jesus's uncle, according to Eusebius, who's on the road to Emmaus. Now, where is Emmaus? We have to ask ourselves because we 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 talked about characters. You know, Luke sets the stage for us with characters, and now we're going to go to setting. And so, where is Emmaus? Well. Our scriptures tell us here at the very beginning, they were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, that translation there is taking a little bit of liberties. Now, I don't necessarily criticize it for taking liberties because it's helpful, but um, we don't have miles in Greek. Like in Greek, there's not a word for miles. What what it actually says is that they were going to a village named Emmaus about 60 stadia from Jerusalem. So stadia was the the normal sort of measurement, the Roman measurement, okay? I think it was like a 106 feet or something like that. Don't quote me on it, but if you Google it, it'll come right up. How many, uh, how many feet are in a stadia? Now, the translators of the scriptures, knowing that we're not going to know what 60 stadia is, just do the calculations for us and translate it as seven miles. Now, we get a little bit of a problem here, and I'm going to introduce you to, to an idea that you've probably not been familiar with. Sometimes, every so often, in the scriptures, when we're looking at ancient manuscripts, there will be little differences in the manuscripts. And this is one of these sections at Luke 24, verse 13, where he, we have uh, textual manuscript differences. So some manuscripts say 60 stadia. And if that's true, then the translation of seven miles is correct. And if that's true, then the uh, village of Emmaus is fairly close to Jerusalem. But... Other manuscripts say 160 stadia. That puts Emmaus about 35 miles from Jerusalem. And actually, I should note that Luke here appears to be talking about round trip, okay? So if, if, if uh, Emmaus is only seven miles, 60 stadia from Jerusalem... Uh, we're looking at a round trip. And so one way we're looking at about three and a half miles. And how do we know this? Well, because there's a couple of different sites that claim to be the village of Emmaus. 
One of them is about three and a half miles from Jerusalem. Seven miles round trip, 60 stadia. But there's another one that has been held as the village, the ancient village of Emmaus, the biblical uh, New Testament village of Emmaus for much longer. And that one is about 160 round trip stadia from Jerusalem, about 35 miles. And so uh, this introduces a little bit of difficulty, but how, how do we, uh, how do we, reconcile these differences? How do we figure out uh, where um, the the scribe uh, copying the New Testament text possibly just made a mistake or was confused? We can look to early church documents. So it's, again, we can look to Eusebius, for example. We can look to St. Jerome. We can look to Origin, okay, these guys lived in the second, third, and fourth centuries, so the 100s, 200s, and 300s, very early, all right? Interestingly enough, both Eusebius, Jerome, and Origen insist that Luke said, or meant to say, 160 stadia, so we have the 35 miles round trip. And Eusebius and Jerome specifically themselves say that the Emmaus that is the real biblical New Testament Emmaus is the Emmaus that's uh, approximately 35 miles round trip from Jerusalem. So about 17 miles from Jerusalem. It's uh, it's a town which uh, was called at one point Emmaus Nicopolis. Okay, Emmaus Nicopolis. Originally, it was just called Emmaus, and then it got the designation from Rome as a polis or a city, so the name became Emmaus Nicopolis. And uh, from the 4th century on, this site, this city, the city about 17 miles from Jerusalem, is the city that pilgrims go to. So... The other cities uh, that are claimed as the original uh, village of Emmaus, the biblical village of Emmaus, we don't have records of people, pilgrims, visiting these places until the time of the Crusades, okay? Now, I'm not an archaeologist and I'm not an expert, but I think there's good reason to believe Eusebius, Jerome, and Origen, that the correct manuscript, what Luke actually meant to write, was 160 stadia, and that the original road, uh, the original village of Emmaus is this Emmaus Nicopolis. Now, also interesting is that St. Jerome tells us that in Emmaus was the house of Cleopas. And that when Jesus celebrated what is essentially the Eucharistic meal with them in Cleopas's house, he elevated Cleopas's home to a church. All right. And if you go to Emmaus Nicopolis and you survey the archaeological remains, 
you'll find remains of, for example, a fourth century Byzantine church, which if you're, if you're an archeologist and you're going around the Holy land and you're trying to, uh, you're trying to uncover the, the true location of some of these events, you want to find a fourth century Byzantine church. Why? Well, fourth century, because it was in the fourth century that Christianity was legalized. And so these sites were venerated, but they were venerated privately and in secret because Christianity was illegal until the fourth century. But as soon as Christianity was legalized by Constantine, all of these churches went up. So you want to find a fourth century uh, church and it's generally Byzantine, right? That's the style that was being built at the time. That was the, the worship that was taking place at the time. And so in uh, Emmaus Nicopolis, we indeed find, archaeologists have found a fourth century Byzantine church that appears to have been built over a first century home that appears to have served as a house church. And this lines up really well with Jerome's idea that in Emmaus was Cleopas's house that Jesus elevated to a church when he celebrated the Eucharist there in the accounts that we find here in Luke 24. So we have these two disciples who are not apostles, but they are disciples. One of them is Cleopas, who is the uncle, according to Eusebius, of Jesus, the brother of St. Joseph. And they're traveling from Jerusalem back to Emmaus because Emmaus is where Cleopas lives, all right? His home is in Emmaus. And why are they traveling uh, from Jerusalem to Emmaus? Well, Jesus kind of tries to get at this question. He wants to know what they are discussing. So the very that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Quick note here. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This sounds a little rude on the surface, right? Why would God allow himself to be disguised from other people? Well, in this story, we know that the whole purpose is so that at the end of the story, at the end of their interactions, when they're in the home and Jesus celebrates this Eucharistic celebration with them, they recognize him in the breaking of the bread. So Jesus allows himself to be disguised. He allows his disciples' eyes to be kept from recognizing him. Why? Because he wants to be recognized in the Eucharist. He wants to be recognized in the Eucharist. This is something for us to take to heart, especially because uh, we may at times have difficulty with the fact that Jesus veils himself in, in, our, in our eyes, right? We can sit in adoration before the blessed sacrament and we can look on him and we can adore him, but he is veiled. But Jesus himself, even when he was still walking the earth in his glorified body, at times chose to veil himself because he wanted to be recognized in the Eucharist. 
And so when we approach Jesus in the Eucharist, we have to understand that he wants us to recognize him in the Eucharist and to love him in the Eucharist and to draw close to him in the Eucharist, to not always demand that he reveal himself to us. I was going to say in flesh and blood in the Eucharist, he does reveal himself to us in flesh and blood, right? Substantially, but nonetheless, it's under the appearance of bread and wine. And so it's not as if we get, uh, we get the leftovers as Christians, 2000 years after Jesus's resurrection But even here, hours after Jesus' resurrection, because this is on Easter Sunday that this is taking place, hours after Jesus' resurrection, he is himself choosing to disguise himself so that he might be seen and known and recognized and loved and adored in the Eucharist, okay? Just hours after his resurrection. He said to them, this is Jesus speaking, what is this conversation which you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. I love that, uh, the realism of that. They stood still looking sad. So they're walking along. Jesus asks this, this question. It, it causes them pause, quite literally. And they can't help but look dejected. Then one of them named Cleopas, Jesus's uncle, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? This is... This is very, they're very forward and, and we, we get a lot. This is a very loaded question. We get a lot from it. For one, this is the, the sense that Jesus's death was uh, sensational. Okay. Everyone in Jerusalem knew about it. Everyone in Jerusalem knew about it. Uh, this would be like, uh, this would be like on, uh, you know, on uh, Pearl Harbor um, or the day JFK died or September 11th, uh, somebody not knowing everything that had come to pass. Okay. And this is, this is a few days after his death, right? So, so everyone should be up to speed by now. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened he, there in, in these days? And we can even get possibly a, a twinge of a sense of Cleopas just does not want to talk about it. He doesn't want to talk about it. And Jesus said to them, what things? He he has so much curiosity for us. Sometimes we, uh, we see our Lord in his omniscience and his all knowingness and his omnipotence, his all powerfulness, and think that he has no use for questions. But Jesus loves questions. All you have to do is, is spend some time reading through the New Testament. You'll find that Jesus answers, asks questions all the time. Um, one thing we need to do in prayer is allow, allow Jesus to ask us questions. Allow him to ask us questions and to uh, entertain Jesus's questions. So Jesus says to them, what things? And they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. 
And besides all this, it is now the third day since this happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. And they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Okay, so this is their answer to Jesus when he says, what things? And they say, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word. And this is correct. This is correct. And it's fascinating that Luke gives us this term, mighty in deed and word, because in his sequel to his gospel, which is the Acts of the Apostles, we're going to get this phrase again, mighty and deed and word, and it's going to refer to none other than Moses, okay? Uh, and so in, uh, in the book of Acts, uh, when St. Stephen is in front of the Sanhedrin giving his witness at Acts 7.22, he refers to Moses and calls Moses mighty in word and deed, all right? So there's this idea that the disciples of Jesus understand him to be uh, a prophet and even a prophet unto Moses, which is really important because Moses himself prophesied that a prophet like him would come after him. So at Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses says, the Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. And so Jesus's disciples recognize him as a prophet, but they don't seem to go farther than that. And what is their hang up? Their hang up is that Jesus has died because they go on to say the chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And so what do we get here? This idea that Jesus's death excludes him from redeeming Israel. And the irony here is that it's actually, in fact, Jesus's death. It's by his death that he is able to redeem Israel. Jesus redeems Israel by his crucifixion and death. And, and Jesus is going to be frustrated by the fact that they can't see this. And so he's going to, he's going to open the scriptures to them. So there, Jesus' death bothers them because the death seems to exclude our Lord from in the eyes of these two disciples from redeeming Israel. When in reality, his death is actually what brings about the redemption of Israel. But also the disciples have a hang up about Jesus's resurrection. They have a little bit of the mindset of St. Thomas, right? Who we read about last Sunday. St. Thomas hears, the, the apostle Thomas hears that Jesus is risen from the dead hears that there was an empty tomb, even hears that some of the other apostles have uh, seen Jesus, but he refuses to believe until he actually sees him himself. So these two disciples have heard of the resurrection that very morning, because remember, this is, this is Easter Sunday morning. They say, besides all this, it is now the third day 
And so it's taking too long. If something's going to happen, it's taking too long. We get this idea from them. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, that being that morning. They didn't find his body, came back saying they saw a vision of angels who said that he was alive. The angels said he was alive. So some of those who were with us went to the tomb. And if we're, if we're, um, corroborating this with the gospel of John, we know we're talking about, um, Peter and John, they go to the tomb and they find it just as the women had. But then we, we get this kind of, uh, exception kind of clause, but him, they did not see. And this is the hang up for the disciples. So the women don't find the body. They see the empty tomb. They have the vision of angels who say that Jesus is alive. And in addition to that, Peter and John actually go to the tomb and they find it as the women said, but they don't see him. And so the disciples refuse to believe without some scene of Jesus. And Jesus is going to address these two things, right? He's going to address their misunderstanding of Jesus's death. He's going to show them that, in fact, it not only does it not exclude him from redeeming Israel, but it's actually the way in which he brings about the redemption of Israel. And he's also going to, uh, he's going to overcome that disbelief in the resurrection. And, and it's fascinating the way he does it because does he do it by just revealing who he is in his glorified body? No, he, he softens their heart and gives them the grace to recognize him in the breaking of the bread in the Eucharist. Okay. Verse 25, he said to them, Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures concerning himself. This has to be one of the best Bible Bible studies ever conducted. You have a private Bible study on the road to Emmaus where Jesus himself opens the scriptures to us. And we get, we get the idea that this was an amazing Bible study because later on, just a few verses later, they're going to say, were not our hearts burning within us when he opened the scriptures to us? Were not our hearts burning within us when he opened the scriptures to us. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? Jesus himself predicted his passion on multiple occasions. Let's just look at the gospel of Luke twice in the gospel of Luke. At Luke chapter nine, verse 22, Jesus says, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. Jesus himself predicted these things. Luke 17, verse 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. This is the son of man Jesus is referring to, which is the title he uses for himself. But first he, the son of man, must suffer many things, 
and be rejected by this generation. Even later in Luke's sequel, The Acts of the Apostles, St. Peter preached in a sermon early on in Acts chapter 3, verse uh, 18, seems to have an understanding of these scriptures, probably infused in a way by the Holy Spirit, which has come upon him. And at verse 18 of chapter 3, he says, What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ should suffer, be thus fulfilled. What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should, sh- should suffer, he thus fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled what the prophets foretold, that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer. And when Jesus is opening the scriptures to them, uh, beginning with Moses and up through all the prophets, he's showing them these scriptures that, that foretold of the necessary suffering of the Messiah. We can think of the most preeminent one being the suffering servant uh, prophecy in Isaiah, right? Oh, foolish men, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He appeared to be going further, but they constrained him saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished out of their sight. So Jesus is opening the scriptures to them. They come to their destination. Jesus appears to be going further, but they say, stay with us. This is a, this is a beautiful piece of scripture that, uh, that can be one of those prayers that can be uttered all throughout the day. Stay with us, Lord. Stay with us. So he went in and he stayed with them. When he was at table, he does these four things. This is a, this is a fourfold formula, which is going to occur several times in the New Testament. And it's always linked to the Eucharist. He took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. Took, blessed, broke and gave the same things, the same four things we're told that he does at the last supper, took, blessed, broke, and gave. And when he does those four things, celebrating essentially the first post-resurrection mass, you might say the second mass, when he does those things, then their eyes are opened and they recognize him. And as soon as they recognize him, not only in the flesh, but in the Eucharist, he vanishes from their sight. He vanishes from their sight, but yet he still fulfills their request. Though he has vanished from their sight, he has not failed to fulfill their request, their beautiful, simple request, which we should all make of the Lord. Stay with us. And how does he fulfill their request? By giving himself to them in the Eucharist. And he has continued 
to fulfill the request, not only of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, but all disciples everywhere who implore our Lord, stay with us. And he stays with us in the Eucharist. St. Jose Maria Escriva said, When you approach Jesus in the tabernacle, remember that he has been waiting for you for 2,000 years. When you approach Jesus in the tabernacle, remember that he has been waiting for you for 2,000 years. I want to focus on this phrase that uh, makes up the beginning part of verse 31. So Jesus does the fourfold actions, that fourfold formula. He takes, blesses, breaks, and gives. And we're told then at verse 31, their eyes were opened. This exact expression, which is actually three consecutive Greek words in the original Greek of the Gospel of Luke, is only found one other place in Scripture. These three consecutive Greek words that we translate here, their eyes were opened, are only found one other place in Scripture. At Genesis 3-7. Genesis 3-7. What is Genesis 3-7? Genesis 3-7 is, uh, is in the middle of the story of the fall. And it's right after Adam and Eve take of the fruit and they eat of it. And at verse 7, we're told their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. And this beautiful connection that St. Luke makes for us shows us that not only is this meal in a way the second mass, not only is this meal the once more giving of Jesus to us in the Eucharist, the way he fulfills the request of the disciples and us to stay with him. But this meal, this meal is the first meal of the new creation. See, the meal in the first creation, that fateful meal, which was the eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the forbidden fruit, it led to death. But now Jesus has given us a new meal, a new meal for a new creation. And this new meal, it does not give death. In fact, this new meal gives life. Where that fateful meal in Genesis brought death, this meal in Emmaus brings life. Where that first meal in Genesis stripped humanity of its divine dignity, This meal in Emmaus restores our dignity. (laughs) This whole thing is just so mind-blowing. It's not enough. It's not enough for Jesus to simply die in the cross and rise from the dead and redeem Israel. He wants to fulfill our simple request. Stay with us, Lord. And in this beautiful meal where he gives us his very flesh and blood so that we can be in intimate communion with him, even physical communion, by this meal, Jesus undoes all 
of the effects of sin caused by that first meal in the Garden of Eden. Jesus, give us your life. Jesus, open our eyes. And they say, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? And do our hearts not still today burn within us when our Lord opens the scriptures to us and connects the Old and the New Testaments and shows us how he fulfills all of the longings of the people of ancient times and all of our longings ourselves? And they can't be still, these two, they can't be still. At verse 33, it says, they rose that same hour and they returned to Jerusalem some 17 miles They found the 11 gathered together and they said, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon, right? And and the beautiful thing here is that the, 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 the hang up for Cleopas and his, his companion that Simon, according to John's gospel, who was one of the ones who went to the tomb to verify the empty tomb, who did not see him. In the meantime, while they are on the road to Emmaus encountering Jesus in the Eucharist, Jesus appears to Simon Peter. And so that is verified. And then the two unable to contain themselves, having ran probably most of the 17 miles back to Jerusalem, tell them what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread, how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Lord Jesus, may our hearts be open, the eyes of our hearts be open, that we would recognize you in the breaking of the bread, that we would see that in the Eucharist, you fulfill the deepest longings of our heart where we say, stay with us, and that we might understand that when we approach you, Jesus, in the Holy Eucharist, that you are undoing the effects of sin You are giving us this food for life, which overcomes the death brought about by sin and that first meal in the Garden of Eden. And that it has been 2,000 years that you have been in the tabernacle waiting for us. Lord, may our hearts burn. May our hearts burn with love for you. 